of not being disciplined. One of them is Shirley Bauer, a, uh, an Iowa resident who at 25 got her first job working for Sheraton Hotels and decided uh, soon thereafter that she wasn't very interested in the job, it wasn't a good fit for her, and that she was tremendously bored. And so she thought a good way to spend her time was to start blogging about how bored she was at work and how she was pretending to fill her time so that she would look very occupied when her bosses came around, even though she wasn't doing anything related to her job. Here's a little excerpt from Lee. This typing thing seems to be doing the trick. It just looks like I am hard at work on something very important. I'm going to sit right here and play elf bowling or some other nonsense. Once lunch is over, I will come right back to writing to piddle away the rest of the afternoon. Shirley's uh, blogging eventually uh, became a 300-page book, upon which she was eventually discovered as having, <laughs> having zero productivity and was fired. You thought that might be the wake-up call for Shirley, but no. She decided to sue for unemployment benefits, uh, even though she had written 300 pages of reasons why she didn't really deserve to get them. We're talking this morning about what it means to be responsible or what it means to be faithful when the master is away, when no one is looking. What are we really up to and how are we spending our time and what does that tell us about who we are and how we really view the master? One of the the main points this morning we'll have to grapple with is how we're waiting, how we're investing the talents reveals how, what we actually think about the master. Right, you can say you think something about the master, but how you're investing and spending the talents is what actually reveals what you think about the master. And so as we press into the parable, I want to think about it in these three ways. Uh, first of all, we have to think about it in terms of the master in Israel. And second of all, we're going to think of it in terms of the master and the three servants. And then third, we're going to think of it in terms of the master and you. But we have to start with, number one, the master in Israel in order to rightly understand the parable. See, the parable at first reading should be a bit of a head-scratcher. But if you're really thinking about it, you should be like, that doesn't quite sound like Jesus. Or, I'm not sure really how to take this parable and to merge it with what I understand to be the gospel. And that's a good reaction because the parable is a little bit confusing. It almost sounds like a test, right? Jesus goes away as the master. You're left to, uh, to engage what you're responsible for. And then you came, come, Jesus comes back, and you're evaluated on what you have or have not produced. Well, I hope you've been faithful. That sounds like a very serious examination. But that, when you start to think about Jesus' ministry, a certain tension arises. Jesus comes calling the sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, he's even so brash as to say that they will precede the religious leaders into the kingdom of God. So he's not necessarily saying that the, the high producers, right, the people who have done the best with their talents, are those that are actually inheriting the kingdom of God or understanding what the kingdom is about. So we realize that the parable must have some more complexity to it than might be apparent at first reading, that it requires some nuance. It can't simply be about just being productive in the absence of the master because Jesus comes calling the unproductive, those who haven't been mindful of the master at all, those who have been intent on other masters than the one true master, 
and they receive the kingdom. So we realize that at this point in Matthew, and what Matthew is doing all along throughout his gospel, is doing two things at once, and he helps us to see Jesus doing these two things at once. He helps us more so than the other gospel writers to see this. That Jesus, when he's speaking and teaching, is both offering a critique of Israel as well as previewing what is to come. And this is what will actually enable Paul down the road to say, we learn from Israel. Israel's mistakes are for our benefit. And so here, Jesus is telling a parable but that the religious leaders who are gathered would certainly understand as critique and condemnation of them, but it also previews his coming departure and warns us about how we live in the midst of his absence physically here on earth. So how do we get this, this Israel part? We have to remember that, that Jesus has been reminding the Israelites, but when we look at the story of the Old Testament as a whole, Israel was entrusted with the great privilege of being chosen by God. They received the law and the temple. God's presence dwelt in their midst, and they were called upon to be a blessing to the nations, to be a light to the nations. But over time, oftentimes, they neglected that call. They weren't faithful to it. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus spends essentially the entire chapter saying, pointing out to the religious leaders, listen, you got the Torah. You got the law. And the law was supposed to make you a holy people, representative of God in this world. But what you did was take the law and made sure that you were righteous in your own eyes. You took the law and it was all about you. It wasn't about making you who you were supposed to be in this world and participating in the mission that I had called you to. And it's this idea of Israel's failure that Jesus takes issue with in Matthew 5, verse 14 and through 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This mandate, this calling that Jesus is giving to the new disciples who are following him as Messiah comes in the same vein as a critique for those who have failed to actually let their light shine before the nations. Israel had hidden the light that was given to them. You know, it's an interesting question. Why did Israel think it was not worthwhile to really be faithful with what God had given to them in the way that God had called them to be faithful? Why did Israel decide that it was really just about them and not necessarily about what they were supposed to be doing in terms of mission in this world? That's a question we're going to have to continue to unpack. But at this point, at least we can say of this parable that it's certainly not simply about talents. At least talents in the way that it's written in this text. See, the parable of the talents is a little bit tricky because talents, in, at the time that this was written, and the time it was spoken, refers strictly to money. Right? That's the only thing that is on the table. A talent was, about, was worth about 15 years of a laborer's uh, work. Right? So it's a fairly significant amount of money. But over time, even you know, the people who were first dealing with this parable, the ancient church fathers... We're reading this parable and say, well, this can't be simply about money. Obviously, there's a lot going on with the critique of Israel and for setting us up for Jesus' departure. And so they started to understand talent as referring to more than money. Where do you think your English word talent came from? 
right? If I say, you know, if somebody says to you, what are you doing with your talents? You don't think of money. You think of gifts that somebody's been given. Our English word talent comes from this parable and comes from it being understood in different ways than strictly applying to money. Right? I think it's somewhat at an obvious level that we would all say that Jesus isn't strictly, uh, strictly concerned about our investment strategy. Right? Our financial portfolio is not the primary target of this parable. So for understanding the talents is referring to something more than money, and we see that there's a critique here of Israel and their lack of faithfulness to participate in the mission that God called them to that sets us up to hear the parable correctly and to apply it in a much better fashion than if we didn't have that background, if we didn't set that stage. So that's number one, the master in Israel. Number two is the master and the servants. So taking that understanding of the critique of Israel, how then do we now understand the master and the servants and their relationship? The master's going away. You've got three servants, and two do really well. One turns five talents into ten talents. One turns two talents into four talents. But one servant buries his talent. He hides it in the ground, which was a pretty common way of hiding money. You know, you didn't really have banks in the sense that we think of banks. So one of the safest things to do with your money was to bury it somewhere that only you knew where it was. But why does this servant act in a way that's so dramatically different than the other two servants? What sets that servant apart? Well, we see that he has a pretty different opinion of who the master is. Look at verse 24. Upon the return of the master, it speaks of the third servant. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. You see, the third servant's opinion of the master is unique in that he's a hard man. He says, listen, I know you. You reap where you don't sow, and you you gather where you've scattered no seed. In other words, you, you ride on the backs of your servants. You give us your money, we invest it, we do all the hard work, and you come back and you collect the profits. Why would I want to be investing for a guy like that? And have you not felt that way sometimes about God? Israel certainly did. Think of Israel's story. When Israel was serving God and felt like they had been called out and were seeking to be faithful, but I mean, think of one occasion when they're in the wilderness for a long period of time and Water is scarce, and food is scarce, and God doesn't seem to be taking care of them in the way they want to be taken care of. And Moses, their fearless leader, goes up onto Mount Zion, but he he disappears. He's gone much longer than expected, 40 days. So in the midst of that, Israel says, well, it certainly seems like we've been abandoned. God doesn't seem very present. So what should we do? Let's make a new God. Let's forge a calf made of gold, and we'll worship that. Actually, we see in Israel's story over and over again the feeling that God is a hard man, a hard master. And he gathers where he doesn't sow. And where he's not showing up, let's then take a different route. And it doesn't really matter what we do with what he's entrusted to us because we have to make our own path in this world. It's the only way to survive. Right? And again, have you not felt that way at times about Jesus who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? And you say, really? 
doesn't feel that way. It feels actually rather crushing. And you seem to be very absent and very quiet. And so, yes, I know that I'm supposed to be intent about the desire of the Master, why the Master is gone. But listen, Jesus, this world is a hard place. And you don't seem to be very intent on the problems that are confronting me, so I'm going to be busy about doing things about them. And in that, we subtly we choose different masters. We move in different directions. Right? It's the third servant. He says, the master is a hard man. He gathers where he doesn't sow. I'm just going to bury this. That way I make sure to give him back what he's given to me. But I'm not on the hook for anything else. How many of you are taking what Jesus has given to you and you really think he's a hard man and you bury it and say, I don't have to be very active. You know, Jesus will come back. All I have to make sure is that I've, I've, I've lived this life of minimum faithfulness. I've avoided gross sin. I've been largely faithful and that's what I'll hand back to him. And that'll be adequate because that's what he's given to me and he's been very absent and very hard and that's the reality. And he forgives anyway. We all need to hear this morning that the the words of the master to the third servant is to part. He's thrown into the outer darkness. We're being warned of something very serious here. Something that we often don't think of as necessarily being as serious as it is. So is the opinion of the third servant fair, right? He's saying, the master's a really hard man, so I don't have to work for him. Well, what do we see actually in the character of the master as represented in the story? When he shows up, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Words of acclaim. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. I'm going to give you a promotion and allow you to share in more of my kingdom. Enter into the joy of your master. Here's a bonus. I'm experiencing joy from what you've done, but I want you to share and enter into the joy of the Master. Right? What a jerk. We begin to see that the third master servant's opinion of the Master isn't very well founded by what's revealed in the story. You see, the servant has come up with an opinion of the Master, but here's the really interesting thing about the parable. Is that the Master's opinion, or the third, ser- the third servant's opinion of the Master is fabricated. And it's fabricated in such a way to serve his purposes. He really doesn't want to do anything for the master. And the master, do you see, he calls him out on it. Because the servant says, I was afraid. And the master says, no, if you were afraid, you would have invested it at the bank so that I would have gotten at least some return. But you didn't do that. You buried it. You're not afraid. You might be lazy. You might be self-interested. You may not care about me. But you're not afraid because your actions would have been different. So we realize that the whole conception that this is a hard man of whom I need to be afraid is fabricated simply to facilitate the actions of the third servant, which is that he wants to be lazy and doesn't want to participate in the mission and the agenda of the master, of his enterprise. And how often do we then cast the master in a certain light so that we would excuse ourselves from actually being faithful from what, with what's entrusted to us? This brings us to the, to the third part. If this is what we learn from the relationship between the master and the three servants, then how do we apply that to ourselves? How do we really know 
what it is to enter into the joy of your master, of the master. The servant says, I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours in verse 25. And we've already noted that he wasn't really afraid. If he was afraid, he would have taken a different course of action. But that we can set to the side for a moment because the real point at this juncture is that the, mass, the servant, in choosing to not honor the master nor respect the master, has now chosen a different master. We could say that it's his perceived fear. We could say that it's what he wants to do. We could say that it's himself. But what he's doing is saying, I don't need to obey the master. And at that very moment, another master arises because it's a fact of life that you cannot be masterless. No one lives without a master. Everyone heeds a voice that they obey and kneel to. Whether it be a voice from your own heart, or a voice from outside of yourself, a voice of fear and anger, and a, or anxiety or anger, or whether it be something else entirely. I, I, serve, I serve the idea of my physical beauty so that I would be worshipped for such, so that I would be appreciated for such. Right? You can't not have a master. So the question becomes, is your master is either Jesus or it's something else. I was reading an extended interview with uh, Rihanna that appeared in a magazine and uh, was struck by this notion. Because you'd think most people would, I think, would concede that Rihanna is probably at the top of her field, right? As a hip, uh, well, I don't even know, what, what is she, a rock star? As, as a popular musician, right? She's, she's pretty unparalleled, right? She basically lives on the top Billboard 100, uh, she's worth uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And people would, I think, look at her and think, she's really quite free. She has no master. And so uh, the interview, though, began to talk about how uh, Rihanna has trouble, as she puts it, living in the moment. She's always looking down uh, the road of her life and can't live in the moment, but finds herself constantly trying to navigate what she thinks is going to come. And she says, I used to feel unsafe in the moment of an accomplishment. I felt the ground fall from under my feet because this could be the end. And even now, while everyone is celebrating, I'm on to the next thing. I don't want to get lost in this big cushion of success. So here, Rihanna's fear that this could be over any minute. And the author goes on to comment, and this is how you go from being a child with a good voice to selling 54 million albums in just 10 years. Don't believe the pictures in between each poolside party photo is an untaken one in which she's simply working. Almost every night, when you're asleep, Rihanna is in the studio. She was headed there after our meeting, and Jennifer said she'd be there until morning. At that very moment, the sound engineer was waiting for her, just as I had been waiting earlier. Rihanna doesn't have time for extracurriculars right now, and these include, this includes dating, which I'm sure you were all really curious about. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is that you'd look at a person like Rian and say you're rich and you're free and you're worshipped and you're successful. You have no master. And how does Rihanna live? She says, every day I'm afraid that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to be famous. So what does she do? She's a workaholic. She's in the studio constantly. She's not living this, this life of image that is pleasure and fun, and party all the time, she's working incessantly to make sure that she doesn't wake up tomorrow 
being just like us. Does that sound like someone who's free? Of course not. She is a master. Her master is success. Her master is continuing to be famous. And she'll serve that master with everything that she has, including sacrificing any kind of dating life and staying up all night at the studio to make sure that that master then delivers to her in return sex, uh, returns to her uh, being famous, right? That's what she has been pursuing. Rihanna's a picture of what it means to serve a different master, but another way that we would phrase that, another thing that we would call that is simply idolatry, to worship something that delivers something else to us. And so we realize that we all have a master, we are all serving something, and are we going to serve, uh, actually serve Jesus? You know, the one other interesting thing about the Rihanna story is, you have to admit it's a pretty incredible story. Discovered at 14, she was born in Barbados and uh, born into a very broken family. Her father was a serious crack addict, uh, a relatively sad story. Discovered at 14, signs at 16 with Jay-Z and Def Jam Records. And from that point to the present, she has existed on the Billboard 100 chart, right? Fame and success since that time. It's a rags-to-riches story. It's the American dream. She has pulled herself up out of a place of poverty and thrived. She's become incredibly successful. Except for those little factors that maybe she didn't have a ton to deal with, like being beautiful or having a really good voice. Right? Aren't there things that Rihanna simply has that have been given to her by grace? And she may be a hard worker, but she didn't manufacture those things. The things that we have from God, going right down to our life and our breath, but the actual talents that we have been given by Him are not something that you've created or forged out of hard work. They're something that have been gifted to you. There is no reason except for God's grace that you weren't born a slave in some part of the world today. Right? Why are you sitting here this morning and you're not in bondage in ISIS right now? It's solely God's grace. When you begin to realize the depth right, and how pervasive God's grace is, then you begin to realize, oh, maybe I'm not really my own. Maybe I have a responsibility to use the talents he's given me to actually honor him in his absence, to participate in that mission, right? That is the problem we were saying, the critique of Israel, that they failed. They, they said we're not going to participate in the mission. So how do we make sure that we're not being selfish and actually participate in the mission? How do we make sure that we don't characterize the master as God being very distant or very absent or not very interested in me, which then excuses us to serve a different master, which we think will deliver to us in a more significant way in the here and now? Well, we could evaluate mission from a number of perspectives, but I think we do a pretty good job with our church's mission statement, which I think summarizes essentially the mission that we're called to in the New Testament. What is our mission statement? What do we labor at together? That we be transformed by God's grace. Are you participating in that mission? What does it mean for you to participate in the mission of being transformed by God's grace? Does it mean, oh, I crack my Bible once a week or once a month and offer up a prayer when I need something? Or does it actually mean that you believe that your heart is dead except when 
God makes it flesh in Christ and that you can't grow and become holy except when the Spirit is upon you. And so you actually labor at knowing the Spirit and becoming intimate with the Spirit to the degree that you would be changed. Zach and I have offered up Wednesdays so that we're happy to talk with you about any aspect of life that you would be transformed by God's grace. How many of you are sitting here this morning thinking, I need to talk about X, but haven't come to talk? We're not here to beat up on you. We're here to try to help. And if you don't want to talk to us, that's fine. We're not going to be offended, but are you not talking to anybody? Are you sitting in a place where you're not being transformed by God's grace, and really you're okay with that? Because you know that's going to demand change, and you'd rather bury what you have under the ground and just wait. Or the next part of our mission is what? To heal the broken. Right? Are you actually intentionally saying to participate in Christ's mission who goes to the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes is actually to go to the broken? And you can probably think of someone who's broken in your life. Maybe in your neighborhood. Right? Might be in your church right here. But you tend to think, oh, they will, they will demand so much, it will be so involved, I'm not going to go there. And so do you, are you willing to participate in the mission of healing the broken, or do you bury what you have in the ground? Or to grow in community? Over and over and over again, the New Testament tells us that we cannot experience Christ apart from his body. We together are his feet and his hands. We together are are one body in Christ. And without one another, we can't experience Christ. And so, is your spirituality something that's individualized? Or is it something in which you're actually pursuing relationships and inviting people into your home and going to do things with someone so that you would build those relationships and actually experience the growth of community? And if not, then you're, you're bearing what you have in the ground. And lastly, that we would establish churches that extend God's kingdom, right? That God's glory would be increasingly manifest, that we would put churches in uh, neighborhoods all around us. That we would establish churches in India that further God's kingdom. Are you even inviting anybody to church? Do you believe that the church is actually that building block of the kingdom? Or like the third servant, have you decided just to wait and to bury what you have? You see, in all of these questions, how you would answer these questions reveals to you what you really think about the master. The words, Jesus is master, comes out of your mouth? Okay. How did you just identify yourself as participating in his mission? And if you couldn't participate in his mission, or couldn't identify yourself as participating in his mission, then don't pretend he's master. He might be somebody you respect. He might be a genie in a bottle for you, but he's not master. Why should you make him master? Right, if we were really to retell this parable in the light of the gospel, it would have to be something like this. That uh, the master goes away and he gives to us a bunch of talents to invest. And uh, we throw a ridiculously big party and waste. Uh, we buy speedboats for the lake and we eat out at the harbor every night until all the money is gone. And the master comes back. And the master says, okay, you worthless servants, it's time to be thrown into the darkness. 
But the son of the master steps forward and he says, no, let's have mercy on them. And he gives all of his talents to all of us so that we might share in his wealth, even though it will cost him everything and render him penniless. And even though even after he gives us all those, is willing to give us those talents, we're going to kill him to make sure that he's given everything to us because that's the way that we look at the son. And still, there's mercy. Even despite that being our reaction to the goodness of God and the talents we are given, that we would put to death His Son, He still invites us to participate in His mission as we are resurrected in Him. Enter into the joy of your Master. There is only one Master that grants joy, true joy. And it is the one who died for you and invites you to participate with Him. To the degree that you pretend, you will never know that joy. But to the degree that you participate, understanding the talents you've been given, your joy will be boundless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, the talents that you have given to us. We thank you that in Christ you have spared nothing. And that though we would squander everything, You have shown us mercy and forgiveness and invited us to participate in your mission. So we pray that you would help us to be brave and not fearful and to be active and not lazy. And to truly believe that you are the master who who asks us to enter into his joy. Father, joy is only found in you. Help us to wake up and to quit pursuing it from false masters. We ask for your grace in this as we come to your table. Amen. Those who are helping to serve the Lord's Supper this morning may come forward with their worship guides. Communion or the Lord's Supper is the supper that Jesus instituted himself on the night that he was betrayed. It's a meal that the Gospels and the New Testament communicates to us that is intended to nourish us. It says that if we are going to be part of him, we actually have to feed on his body and drink his blood. And that's as hard for us to hear as it was for the early Christians to hear. What does that mean? And doesn't that sound gross? And it sounds more out of a vampire movie than it does than it should than we think it should be coming out of Jesus' mouth. But what Jesus is communicating is that we only have life in him. We only grow in him. And only as we exist in the vine do we thrive as branches. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then come expectantly this morning, come expecting to be filled and be filled with joy that Christ has laid down His life for you so that you may know the joy of the Master and continues to feed you that you might continue to experience it. If you're not sure who Jesus is or are debating whether He indeed is Master, and maybe you're coming awake in the sense that you've been pretending that He's Master for a long time, but He's not played that role in your life at all, then we would encourage you to sit and not to come forward Instead, to consider some of the prayers that are offered for you on page 14 in your worship guide. 
Because Paul says to eat and drink of this meal in an unworthy fashion is to eat and drink judgment unto oneself. And we do not desire that for anyone. Instead, sit and ponder and draw near to Christ and ask Him to draw near to you. For those of you who come to receive these good gifts from the hand of our Father, let us give thanks together with the prayer of thanksgiving on page 11 in your worship guide. Our gracious Father, with joy we praise You, for You created heaven and earth. You have made us in Your image and have kept Your promises to us, even when we fell into sin. We give You thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who by His life, death, and resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. We praise You that He now reigns with You in glory, and ever lives to pray for us. We thank You for the Holy Spirit who leads us into truth, defends us in adversity, and out of every people unites us into one holy church. Amen. On the night our Lord was betrayed, He gave thanks. Taking the bread, He broke it, saying, This is My body which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do so in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Paul says, As often.